Well, this morning, we're telling the remarkable story about someone whose entire life was transformed. This story about someone who changed from having issues, someone who was incredibly angry and impulsive, the sort of poor person that overreacted a lot. This story about someone who was at one point completely obsessed with power. Sometimes he was full of hate. Today we're telling the story about someone who radically changes to the point where he goes, where he changes to become someone who is just known by being loving. It's a story about human transformation. I love those stories. You, you probably know how hard it is for humans as a species to change. Maybe you've said or heard the words yourself, this yourself, I don't know why I did that. I'll never do that again. I don't know why I've said that. It's hard to change. But today's story is full of hope because our story today is really about something that brought change to places that are hard to imagine. We're telling the story about what happens when you meet Jesus. Right now we're in a sermon series called The Characters of Easter. It's heavily influenced by a book written by Daniel Darling about the villains Heroes, cowards, and crooks who witnessed history's greatest miracles. It's about the cast of the resurrection, and you're hearing a lot of his influence today, and it's great. I love telling the story of Jesus. And as we do this over the next couple weeks, as we lead up to Easter, I'm convinced that thinking about Jesus can be incredibly meaningful, rest-giving, and life-sustaining, especially if you're willing to pause and listen the greatest story ever told. Now, fair warning, we're covering a lot of information this morning, tons of verses. I am just summarizing a lot of them. You'll see some on the screen or in your handout. I would encourage you to follow along, or you'll also see all the verses posted at the church website, uh, Goshen Church slash live. But with all that said, here we go. You probably know somebody who was a little bit like St. John. Actually, you may not know St. John. Well, let me tell you a couple stories about him. You might know only about him from after he spent a lot of time with Jesus. Here's who John was. Uh, in fact, I'm going to jump off the handout for a second. If you have a Bible, follow along in Luke chapter 9. I'm just alluding to sort of the last few verses, verse 46 and following. Let, let me set up this way. So um, there's an argument that starts among the disciples the topic of the argument was which one of them would be the greatest. Yeah, <laughs> what a dumb argument, right? Like, this is straight, unfiltered, immature, arrogance, and pride. Uh, can you even imagine, like, that argument, you're, you're just following Jesus, and you hear people saying, no, I'm going to be better than you. Nope, I'm going to be better than you. <laughs> like, so Jesus gives him a lesson, and he gets a little child, and he gets him, the child beside and says to this group of people arguing about who's going to be the greatest as whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who's the greatest. This is a powerful lesson. This would be a good sermon to preach on a baptism Sunday, and you would expect someone to hear that sermon. You expect these guys to go, okay, I'm going to sign up for nursery, or thank you, Jesus. We're going to be super humble and maybe... Uh, Welcome others, but the very next verse, like, part of the next verse, it's almost funny. Can you imagine, like, you just hear that lecture from Jesus, and your very next 
everything you say, the next words that come out of your mouth, like, that sounds great, but speaking of humility, <laughs> speaking of accepting people, uh, I'm not making this up. Look what he says. Master, says John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, which was like just sort of generic what Jesus was doing. And John says, we tried to stop him because he wasn't one of us. Like, and John, in his spirit of humility, is about to send a cease and desist letter to try and protect his own brand. And this isn't about pure doctrine, about getting it right. This is about power. John's going, look, we've got a franchise. I'm your disciple. There's other people following you, and we got to stop them. <laughs> what a funny thing to say. Uh, funny in the sense that uh, it just shows off how arrogant he is. Instead of responding to Jesus' teaching, he's sort of, I mean, just, just so arrogant here. And it, it, it kind of makes me wonder, I, I always ask this question, like, I wonder what he was about to say before Jesus told him to be humble. Like maybe John goes, this is me being humble. But uh, the more you learn about John, the more you kind of think he's, uh, I don't know if I'd want to be friends with this guy. Let's face it though, followers of Christ still can act a little bit arrogant. Let me just be honest for a second. As a speaker, it's always easier to punch down at other Christians than build up the body of Christ. Uh, to go, Jesus, hey, there's people over here doing this kind of ministry. We got to stop them. Like that's, there, there's a lot of, I mean, I'll be honest, it's a lot of fun to knock other Christians, to make fun of other ministries and groups, in part because you know, the more you punch down at other people, the higher you seem, the, the smarter you seem. Uh, criticizing other people make, well, sells a lot of books. It draws a lot of crowds. But Jesus says, do not stop them. And then this line that I always think about, for whoever is not against you is for you, says Jesus. That's a one snippet of Jesus rebuking John because John is too judgmental and too critical. But there's more stories here. If you have Luke 9 open, <laughs> the very next story. Verse 51. As a time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. Um, so you may know the story about Samaritans and Jesus. Jesus is uh, walking by foot through religiously hostile territory. Lots of, lots of Jews avoided the Samaritans. As you may know, the Samaritans didn't think you should worship in Jerusalem at all. And uh, you may be aware of the back and forth between the two. Uh, but it was not a surprise to anybody that the Samaritans didn't want to let Jesus and his friends crash on any of their couches, right? And John, look at this guy goes, verse 54, when the disciples, James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, I got an idea. Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Like just, I mean, for a minute, just put aside whether this would actually work. Think about how crazy this is. Think about what, imagine that um, you want to, you're in a town, no one knows you, no one likes you, no one invites you to sleep in their guest room, and your response is, hey, uh, should we call the Pentagon 
and see if we can get the Air Force to drop some napalm and just destroy the entire village. Uh, you know, men, women, children, all that. That's what John says in the next verse. This is amazing. Jesus turned. You don't find him like spinning like that very often, but he turns and rebukes them. This is very strong language. In fact, if you've ever wondered what it takes to get yelled at by Jesus, this is it. Trying to cause genocide seems to get his issues, or get his attention. I don't know why John comes in so hot. Maybe it's racism, losing his temper. Maybe he's, maybe the guy's just tired of walking all day. I, mean, I get that. But the man seems crazy. He's so intense. You show me someone who talks the way John does, and I'll show you someone that I wouldn't want to lead anything. That's who John is. I mean, let's just be honest. This still happens, though. Even religious people who use the name of Jesus can be a little bit too hot, a little rash. Even people raised Christian can harbor hatred and pride. And if that's you or if you know somebody like that, you know how hard it is to change. That is what John was like. One more example. This is from Matthew chapter 20, verse, I think verse 20. You got to think about how crazy this is. Matthew says that the mother of Zebedee's sons, you know who those are, Zebedee's sons, James and John. <laughs> so, John, John gets his mom to come to Jesus and uh, she kneels down and asks Jesus a favor. Verse 21, what's a favor out of anything, you ask Jesus? Jesus goes, what do you want? And Jesus says, grant that one of these two sons of mine. So the, the guys are there. One of them uh, said at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So to be clear, after James and John have been sort of arguing and being lectured over and over again, uh, on the topic of their arrogance and why, why do you keep arguing who's going to be the greatest, they pull a real power move here and <laughs> get their mom to ask Jesus. That's right. They pull the mom card. And uh, it kind of makes sense. Jesus, in context, if you read Matthew, he just talked about Jesus' special future mission. The disciples sit on 12 thrones, judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, they just... They're hungry for power. They want a better title, a seat closer to the ring of uh, the seat of power. In fact, if you read Matthew, um, all the other 12 disciples are annoyed. <laughs> what are you doing getting your mom to, to ask Jesus for favors? That's John. Here's the thing, though. People are people. And um, Christians these days, we've, I mean, we as a culture, we've learned to be more polite about pursuing power and influence, but being subtle hasn't made it any less damaging. Uh, we still are influenced and tempted by the pursuit of power. I think it's one of the biggest problems in Western Christianity, this link, this flirtation with power instead of faith. This is John. He's with Jesus for all the wrong reasons. He's that politician in the South quoting Bible verses that he's never read on his own just to get people to vote for him. And when you hear someone talk like this, you very quickly go, you're a hypocrite. You're faking it. John, you're using the pretense of faith to get what you really want is power. And that is what John seems to be. So of course, Jesus says, 
to, to John's mom, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? And the answer, we can. It was fascinating. Jesus didn't say what I just said. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for being hypocritical or insecure or insincere or power hungry. Jesus doesn't challenge their desire to sit closer to Jesus. Instead, he, and he later expands on this, he explains that they're pursuing the wrong kind of influence and power. That in the kingdom of God, the way up is the way down. The way to power in the kingdom of heaven is by giving it up. Jesus articulates. The path to glory looks like spending time with kids. The path to greatness looks like humility. In other words, God's, or sorry, John's issue wasn't his ambition. It's a problem that he settled too easily. John wanted an earthly, temporary position in a short-lived kingdom. And Jesus had something much, much greater for eternity. But this is our constant temptation too, right? We who follow Jesus, we are tempted to substitute the here and now for the greater reward we have in heaven. That's our struggle. And that's a John. You know, last week we talked about Peter. We Christians have given Peter the label of impulsive and uh, the guy who talks before he thinks, but Jesus doesn't call Peter that. He calls John that. You know John's nickname? It's Son of Thunder, which uh, is a little mean. <laughs> Jesus makes up a mean name for John. You ever wonder like, what it would take to have, of all people, Jesus to give you a mean nickname? Well, it's, it's being like John <laughs> earns you a mean nickname. <laughs> Son of Thunder. Impulsive, hard to predict, violent, hard to predict, uh, uh, pro-violence, sort of person. That, that's the name John. That's a nickname John gets after the traits he was ashamed of. Uh, his hot temper, his tendency toward judgment and legalism. You, you ever watch the, uh, they show footage of a place that a storm wrecks? Son of thunder. Dangerous. Not helpful. But the story isn't about a violent person. Today's story is about change. And I'm fascinated by the question, how does someone who's violent, prideful, power-hungry, and impulsive change to become well, the, the one we know, the Apostle John, whose writings are saturated with love? Well, let me tell you, so his story starts off like Peter. He's a fisherman. He's with his older brother, James. And they run a successful fishing business in Capernaum. It's owned by their father, whose name is Zebedee. When you read this story, John, like Andrew, heard John the baptizer who points to this Jesus character. And one day, you see the text behind me, Jesus shows up at John's work site. They're mending their nets. They're getting ready to go out for another night at sea. And Jesus calls out to John, follow me, Jesus says. You're here. You've got a life you're comfortable with. Jesus says, follow me. And in that moment, John walks away from everything left his tools, left his family. Jesus asked his followers to follow him all the time. But this is something you need to know about Jesus. Jesus takes over lives. Everything John had was devoted to following Jesus. 
That's what Jesus does. Think about what Jesus is asking in the verses behind me. This isn't just a, John, you stay here, and uh, I want you to pray a prayer with me. Like, he's leaving his mom, his dad, his career, his stuff. When Jesus says, follow me, he means like, follow me with everything. That's how change starts. I think, I'll be honest, I think we're really uncomfortable with the notion that following Jesus involves everything. We'd be happy if Jesus, if we could add Jesus onto our already comfortable life. Maybe we'll uh, pick up a podcast we could listen to in the car. Uh, if I were John, if John were an average American, he would probably stay at his nets, stay with his family, a safe way of life, and he'd maybe read a devotional once every couple days. That's, that's doable, right? That's not distracting. But the thing is, even if you stay where Jesus finds you, you can stay with your family, you can keep the same job, but following Jesus is still a big commitment. And that commitment is where John starts to change. That's a big deal. And a lot of us never get to where John becomes. Is A lot of us are like, John, we hear Jesus say, follow me, and we're like, okay, fine, but don't mess with our weekends, right? I got a lot going on. We, we don't think being a Christian should cost us anything. We're really happy to go, yes, I'm a Christian. I baptize. I've got a church I go to a couple times a year. I kind of know the Lord's Prayer, depending on what translation. Like that, That's not how it works for John. Following Jesus is more than just occasionally listening to his word. For John, it, it's a big deal. It's more than something you add in between a busy Saturday night and Monday morning. Like for John, Jesus changes his entire life. It's a big commitment. It's Baptism Sunday, and you all heard some of the commitments made by followers of Christ. And uh, I, I, I love hearing uh, people promise to follow the Lord and raise kids. It's, uh, it's hard to raise kids, right? <laughs> they got their hands full. Uh, and I love that you guys made these promises. And you, church, you made promises to hold the people in baptism, this family, in accountability and encouragement. It's a big commitment. Following Jesus consistently is really hard. It was like that with John. It still is today. For John, the thing that started to change his life is following Jesus in a way that changed his entire life forever. And that's not where his story ended, but that's where John's story begins. To go, Jesus is calling me to follow him, and I will. This is what, well, this is where John's story starts off. Because following Christ is a radical lifestyle change. But here's kind of the weird thing. Um, Jesus is really powerful, right? Jesus decided not to change John overnight. If I were Jesus, and I were Change, if I were asking John to follow me, I would have snapped my finger and changed him to be somebody more fun to live with. <laughs> like, he could have done it. Jesus spoke the whole world into existence. Jesus, in seconds, calms storms with his words. In moments, he heals people, makes the lame to walk, the blind to see. He could have easily changed a son of thunder to be a son of love in a conversation. But that's not how Jesus changes people. John changes over a long 
drawn-out process of years. And he goes out and he had to leave comfort and convenience and family and friends and live with Jesus every day for years. And it became a slow, gradual transformation of his struggles as he faithfully followed the Lord. And I think Jesus still does that. You already heard a bunch of stories about what John was like as a disciple. You already kind of heard a little bit that John was sort of the same person. He decides to follow Jesus and stayed the same prideful, arrogant person he was before that. Let me tell you that when it started to change. In the story of John, I'm convinced that the pivot point was in the upper room. The son of thunder becomes an apostle of love. Let me tell the story. John and the disciples thought they were going to yet another Passover dinner. It's a religious Jewish tradition where Jews all over the world would think about God's rescue from the Egyptians. And Peter and James and John and Jesus were hosting the Passover celebration. But it was one that I think everyone there remembered forever. John in his gospel, the same guy who wrote the gospel of John, gives us the longest record of that night. You'll find in it Jesus' uh, sort of his final will and testament. He talks about his betrayal. Jesus talks about John. Uh, Jesus talks about God being with people in tragedy. And just so you know, by that point, the Jews had adopted the Roman custom of eating while laying down, so heads on the heads toward the table, resting the. Uh, I should know this. The left hand was on the table. Right hand was used for eating. And it looks like John finally got his place at the right hand of Jesus, but it's a very different sort of power structure. In the story, John was just struck by what Jesus did as the most powerful person in the room. Remember what Jesus does? He picks up a basin and a towel and goes to the outside of the table in the role of a humble servant. He washes each of the disciples' dirty, dusty feet. That's what power looks like. Jesus, during that meal, predicts a future kingdom that looks less like a victorious march through Jerusalem and more more of the power that comes through the ugly instrument of execution and torture and the cross. Maybe the words that shook John and the others most are the words, one of you will, will betray me. How can you imagine that? That one of them will betray Christ. And it's actually, of all people, it's John who's the one who whispers to Jesus, who is it? And Jesus replies, well, it's the one that I give the bread to after I dip it. Like, that's John. And Jesus takes a piece of bread, dips it, and gives it to, of all people, Judas. And John just, you just imagine he's stunned. How can Jesus do this? Like Jesus has the power to avoid hardship, and he doesn't. Everything we assume about power and pride and love and hate and judgment, Jesus challenged all of that in that moment. Can you imagine? Jesus, who made the world, he washes Judas' feet. He, he submits to where God's led him to. As if, because it is, as if all of the arrests, the betrayal, the conspiracies were just part of some grand plan that Jesus could just trust his father for. Because it was and he could. 
That is where following Jesus brought John. The place at Jesus' right hand meant seeing the sacrificial, humble love of Calvary for people who hated God. And of all the people to call down fire on, you'd think Judas would be up there. Jesus chose to love his enemy. John's gospel, written decades after the events, is the only one that gives John a new nickname, not the son of thunder, but his nickname becomes the disciple that Jesus loved, which is an upgrade, I think. Of course, it's not implying that Jesus loved John more than the other disciples, but I think what John's saying when he gives himself that name is that his life was changed. He got a new identity. He used to be a son of thunder, but now he is someone who God loves. And in the moment of seeing Christ, he saw the love that it took for Calvary. And he saw that no one else around that table needed the love of God more than John himself did. That was, of course, a weekend that left John never the same. I think when you just read through this story, it must have been like something changed around that table. Because after that table, something is different. I, I think something clicked in that meeting. That, like, I think a son of thunder entered that meeting. But the one who leaves the meal is someone who Jesus loves. And I, I wish we had the time to sort of unpack. And I just wish I had the time to, to read some of the verses John writes about just reveling in God's love. One of my favorites comes from, I'll just read this one. We can do one. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, right? Here's what you need to do, church. You need to think less about all this other stuff. Think more about how much God loves you. God loves you enough to call you a children of God. That's what baptism represents. You are a son or daughter of God. Back to the storyline, though. Let me jump back. Uh, Leaving the upper room transformed John, which is the only reason I can think of that explains why you find at the foot of the cross, the only apostle you find there is John. Everyone else is sort of scattered, fled in fear. Peter denies the Lord and disappears. Judas betrays Jesus. But when Christ is on the cross, you see Christ's mom and you see John standing together. In the last moments of Jesus' life, He's talking to those two. And I imagine it is in that moment, the, among the darkest of human history, the Son of God gasps for air, blood flowing down his body. The shame and humiliation as all the worst sorts of evil rests on Jesus. I think for John, seeing how much Jesus loves us, not just enough to humbly serve people, but to die on the cross for us. That radically changed John to someone who is a unashamed self-promoter, to someone who loves the Lord. The next time we see John, he's with Peter. He sees the resurrected Lord and he believes and he spends the rest of his long life watching the resurrected power of the love of God blow through this formerly cowardly ignorant, brash group of men to change the entire world upside down. I think the most interesting thing to study is maybe the own words of John. 
He ends up writing the Gospel of John, maybe the most read book in the entire Bible. He writes three letters to the church. They're all great. Uh, First, second, third, John talks a lot about love in the middle of sin and compassion. He's given the task of writing about the end of the age in a vision we call Revelations, the last book in the Bible. But maybe the greatest work that John ever saw God do was his own story. That the one time son of thunder who really wanted to destroy his enemies with power, that guy who was self-promotional became known for loving others and promoting God. That's the major theme of his work. Would you like to know what changes people like John from being angry, impulsive, prideful, power-hungry, judgmental, and greedy to changing people to be loving? You just heard. The thing that changes people in ways you just can't explain is seeing the love of God in powerful ways. It's one reason why I love the Easter season. I think in the resurrection, God... God's love has this way of getting our attention and transforming our pride and our hate in a humility and love. That's John's story. That on one level, that's all of our stories because seeing Jesus lay down his life changes us and it shows us how to love. This should be a very familiar story. This should be what happens to all of us over and over again as we consistently follow and fellowship with Jesus as we see his love as we express his love. In fact, the mark that someone has a true relationship with Christ may very well be their ability to demonstrate God's love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my Jesus, I love you. I know you are mine. And can you, can you be with us in a special way as we are all tempted to the allure of power and promotion and selfishness as we all naturally dislike our enemies. As we look upon the cross, the work, the sacrifice of Christ, can you change us to profoundly love other people in ways that put them above ourselves, just like Christ did? Can you help us to be humble? Can you help us to love our enemies? Can you please protect us from all the ways we are tempted to give in to all the ways that power and influence play with our motivations? Father, when we sing words about how much we love you, can they be true? And can you change us to be more like your son, oh God, who loves us and adopts us as his own? I ask in the name of Jesus himself, amen.